And welcome to The Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, your local community radio station or your podcast application, Harbinger Media Network. It is almost Christmas here in the six. Or Or everywhere. Wherever on earth you are, I don't know. I barely care. My name is David Franklin, Erwin Hostetter. I'm Stefan Christian, Erwin Hostetter, and and I do care where you are. Stefan cares where you're at, psychologically, physically, and geographically. Yeah, I was going to metaphysically, but geographically works. Yes, we don't need to know what mudras or symbols you're making with your body or fingers (laughs) at this particular moment. Lauren Elizabeth Corlatort, I believe, is she, she's not still in Dubai. She can't still on her Dubai. wayward back, I believe. She's currently spitting toxic gases into the atmosphere to make her way back from a pointless summit. It was not entirely pointless, as you will hear okay. later in this episode, in fact. We what? do a deep dive. Oh. Oh, no, yeah. I'm no. using that term. Oh. With Mitchell not... Beer, the publisher of The Energy Mix, about okay. COP28... It's yes. wins, it's losses. Where do we go from here? So this whole episode, you're just speaking with Mitchell Beer about COP28. COP28, the emissions cap that was announced there, methane reductions that were also announced there. And then we even get into the fact that according to truly, honestly, in my mind, shocking reports from the Canadian government that we as Canada are actually on target to hit our 2030 emissions goals which I am blown away by, but they have the modeling that at least says that's true. Wow. I know. It's the, it would be the first time Canada has ever made its emissions targets. Just, we've given ourselves so many attempts previously and missed every one. So if they made this one, it'd be the first time ever. So we're, we're good to go, pretty much. No. We don't need to do the green majority. No. No, I mean, I, I do not think we are good to go. The, the targets, while existent, are not strong enough, nor should we believe that without this work that we are doing right now, we may not make it there. You yeah. heard it. We are placing brick upon brick of our utopian future. Exactly. That is on its way, inevitably. Yeah. And there it is. Mr. Mitchell Beer of the Energy Mix will be joining us for most of this program. Lauren Elizabeth Corlator, I guess, will be joining us in the new year. Yes. And we do hope you're enjoying your holiday season. And we're just going to talk slightly before Stefan gets to the Mitchell beer, the pitcher of Mitchell, the pitcher of carbonated Mitchell. Mm. The Trans Mountain Expansion Project is going to boost the existing Trans Mountain Pipeline's capacity by 890,000 barrels a day if it ever gets built. 97% complete. It purchased in 2018 by the Canadian government from Kinder Morgan. That's how you pronounce that. Wow. Right? I, th- I always said Kinder Morgan. Okay. They bailed on it. We bought it. We all own it. And they're... Continuing to not not only is it now thirty over thirty billion dollars, not only is it costing way too much, but they're failing to complete construction without having to without asking the government to change their permits, their licenses. So they keep wanting to alter the way they're constructing it because they're they're running into some problems through some hard rock hmm. in like Kamloops or wherever it is in BC <laughs> that they're 
trying to drill this thing through now. So what's happening now is that they need to change the kind of piping they're using to get it through this final stretch of rock. And so they're saying if the government doesn't allow them to change this license or permit of what kind of piping they're using, then they say they're not going to finish it for another two years. And they're saying they're going to lose $200 million per month that 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 is delayed for. And I guess because it's a crown corporation owned by Canadians, then they're saying that we are all going to lose that much money. But what they mean is that's the projected profits of it that they're losing, right? Like it's uh, well, not... That would be revenue. That would be profits. Revenue. Yeah. So, because it needs to begin shipping oil. Yes. And what, you, but what, you, what you're suggesting is that the reason it needs to begin shipping oil in order to get that revenue is that there's potentially some point in the future at which we'll stop pumping oil. I mean, that's what the Canadian government itself is saying, right? Like the, when, the, when is that going to happen? Well, the... Just quickly, the a couple things here. First is to highlight the fact that, as you mentioned, the cost overrun here is from $5.4 billion, which is how much they said it would cost originally, to $30.9 billion. So it is six yeah. times more expensive than they expected in the billions. Mm-hmm. And part of the problem with this would be that they're in debt to build this. And so the revenue would be debt servicing as well. So the longer you are not making as much money, the more interest you're paying on that debt, et cetera. But also, for those of you who, as I mentioned earlier, will be continuing to listen to this Mitchell Beer conversation, you will hear us talk about the emissions cap that the federal government has announced for the oil and gas sector, Mm -hmm. which is this oil that would be being pumped through it. And... To do that, the oil and gas industry would have to cut emissions by more than one-third within the next seven years. Mm. And so the idea that we are looking at a expansion pipeline that will not come online potentially for another two years, that will triple the capacity of this ability to pump oil in the face of the fact that we need to reduce our emissions from that sector, is already beginning to bump heads, right? And... By 2030, conventional oil companies and oil sense producers and natural gas companies will collectively have to lower their emissions by 35 to 38 percent by 2019 levels. And so this flies in the face of all of that, right? Like the government estimated that oil and gas itself would need to cut 42 percent of their emissions if they're to meet the climate targets by 2030, which we said they're theoretically on pace to do right now, but something like a gigantic pipeline may put that at risk. And then a couple of things I just want to note for listeners that happened just after the conversation I had with Mitchell Beer that he wanted to make sure we knew about because I recorded last Friday and this happened shortly after is that within basically a hundred hours of the COP28 being decided, the COP president, Sultan Al-Jaber, Uh, returned to his main job as the CEO of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, and he told The Guardian that his company would carry on its record investment in new oil and gas production. So this is the man who just finished running the largest climate concert you have within 100 hours of a text that says we must phase out fossils, must reduce fossils, which is one of the things that makes this text actually interesting and useful. That president immediately turns around and says... I plan on investing even more. 
And that follows a trend that Norway's oil and gas industry is projected to increase investment in 2024. The Organization of Petroleum Exporting Companies has predicted a healthy growth in global oil demand in 2024. The colossal fossil fuel companies Petrobras and Chevron and Shell are betting big on oil development in Brazil. The world's biggest oil refinery went into production. This is all within 100 hours. A UK company announced a new North Sea gas discovery, and an offshore gas operator in New Zealand said it had successfully increased its production. So despite the text, and again, you'll hear Mitchell sort of talk about the, the reasons why it's good and the reasons why we saw some success out of it. The fight to prevent oil exploration increasing is only just beginning, I guess I'll say. And then lastly, RigZone, which is a fossil fuel industry newsletter, which you really think they would come up with a name that feels less evil than RigZone, but they have spun the COP outcome as a win for oil and gas. But U.S. climate envoy John Kerry has pushed back against that. However, these are some of the disagreements around COP that happened after the interview with Mitchell Beer. So I want to add that little bit of context before the conversation. Well, rig zone, they want people to read it, Stefan. They want boys who know how to use rigs and want to see that oil get pumped and sloshed through that thick metal pipeline and those beautiful pumping devices I mean, to read their publication. Because some people, you know, they actually respect the machinery. They actually respect human ingenuity and engineering. And they like what they do and they're proud of what they do. That is, that is undeniable. There are people out there who are rig heads, for sure. Exactly. Yeah. But it just, seems, it just seems as though nobody in positions of power or to make leadership decisions seems to know exactly what they're doing. I mean, there's just so many variables with every decision that I feel like the, the, they're always going with the least risky decisions, which end up being incredibly risky. Oh, yeah. They, so it's like they just don't have a handle. You know, nobody has the data. Well, I mean, or they don't want to have the data. They just don't, don't want really to do know. the work. This is the thing about this. And and then our next week's episode, I have a full conversation with friend of the show Alex Tavasoli uh, about how governments are over relying on innovation, as I say, mm. as I call it, versus elbow grease. Like, there's so much work we could be doing right now that would do so much good, but it's just like actually putting in the hard work to say retrofit buildings or change how our power grid system works or supports farmers in decarbonizing their efforts. Like there's a lot of work to be done that, that just takes hard work and people power that we're sort of ignoring or hoping we can incentivize with the market in favor of this mythical innovation where, with carbon capture and storage or other things like that. I mean, you're just sort of waiting to be saved almost. It's like we're presuming we'll get a deus ex machina that will show up and save us all rather than putting in the hard work to actually get the work done, which that's what people seem not want to do. You want to throw us to music break? And we shall turn to a delicious music break and come back with Stefan speaking with Mr. Mitchell Beer, energy expert, about COP28 and other things there you go maybe definitely maybe guaranteed stay tuned first life he 
came into this world Was born not in the morning There was nothing expected First God A symbol he would bow to Proud to worship Everywhere This is my life This is my life This is my life This is my life My life My life First love Would tease him Show skin Like detention First passion His fingers felt the piano Singing rock songs Great joy This is my life This is my life My life My life This is my life This is my life First drink, forbidden, flavor was sweet, he barely stood. First sin, unexpected, shame and guilt subsides, holding on to soul. This is my life, this is my life. Welcome back to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or maybe you found us on the podcast, anywhere podcasts can be found, including now with the Harbinger Media Network. If you have not checked them out, do so. It is an amazing thing that they're doing over there. That song you just heard was First by Paul Manchin. My name is Stephen Hostetter. As previewed earlier on the show, I'm here with Mitchell Beer, the publisher of the Energy Mix, to talk about COP28, probably the emissions cap, maybe we'll get to methane regulations, and if we really blaze through things, we'll even talk about how Canada has just released polling saying that it is on track 
to hit its emissions for targets. We have some questions about that. We might get there. If not, we will follow up in another conversation about it. But since we didn't cover COP last week, we wanted to have a, a good amount of time to talk about it now because obviously, you know, it takes over the environmental news in the weeks leading around it. You know, it, it remains some of our best hope in terms of getting significant climate action on an international level and yet also continues to disappoint in many ways. And so, Mitchell, you obviously followed it very closely with the energy mix. What would you say your high level uh, f- responses to what ended up coming out of the out of this year's conference of parties. Well, thanks, Jeff. I mean, I think you hit it in your intro that on one hand, as always, as with any cop, this was such a compromise and so much of a that's such a disappointment on so many levels. And yet, I will say that my main takeaway is that this conference made history. That when we look back when our children and grandchildren look back at how we solved the climate emergency over time and not by you know not by leaving no one behind because it's too late to say that but how we actually got ourselves out from under this monster crisis when they look back this is going to be one of the moments they point to not because we got they got it all done in one bite there was no way that was going to happen in a process that requires consensus among 195 countries Right. This is stuff that Russia had to agree to, that Saudi Arabia had to agree to, that the United States had to agree to. Okay. But still an historic moment because of the first time after 28 conferences spanning 29 years, this was the first time a COP decision pointed a finger at fossil fuels as the root cause of the crisis and called for a transition of fossil fuels. I wish I had like I want a soundboard so I can go wow 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 or woo you know I'm like <laughs> we need some sort of like celebratory sound after that because it I is think at it, the end it's of the a big deal. People were too tired for those sounds, but you know that also. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, like those people need rest. We, the folks who did not fly halfway across the world, can have the soundboard that that does the success. But uh, yeah, I mean, obviously that is huge like it should have happened many years ago but the fact that it finally is in the language and i know we've talked about it for years and years about how it almost got in it got removed like it's been pulled out of so many previous versions so to actually have it in there is is a win even if it's small there is no way it should have been this difficult having five thousand nearly fossil five thousand fossil fuel lobbyists on site studying the field they weren't there on vacation. They were doing their work, doing their job. So, you know, right through this process, you know, look at decades of climate denial funded by Exxon and other big fossil companies. That buys a lot of confusion and delay, and it's still buying it these days. And yet I keep defaulting to the negative when, which is legitimate, when at the end of the day, the language is in the text. There is a lot of language to weaken it. There are a lot of language to qualify it. But if you're looking for a top line message coming out of the conference, the message to countries, the message to investors, virtually, the message to industries outside fossil fuel that are trying to do their strategic planning of five and 10 and 15 years down the road, the message to all of them is we're at the beginning of the end of the fossil fuel era. There was a moment after the Paris conference, and I hope I'm not thinking back to it too much, but I don't think so. 
Paris was the same kind of moment. It was a milestone in human history, and it was a really weak outcome in so many ways. And at the end of the conference, the head of the European Coal Association, who astonishingly still had the job eight years later, even though this email he sent to his members was leaked to media, but your active reported, and we immediately picked up the story, that the head of the European Coal Association wrote to his members with a message to the effect that you might be pleased and satisfied that COP, um, the, the, the Paris COP came up with such a weak outcome. Don't be. He said, we will be hated and vilified as slave traders were once hated and vilified. Slave traders. Eight years later, there is reference to transitioning off all fossil fuels, not just coal, but oil and gas. And not predicting any literal comparisons between oil and gas companies and slave traders, although there are parts of the world where I bet that fits right now today. But some of the one, one piece of the very arcane language that you hear at a COP conference is the direction of travel, right? And you could fill a whole dictionary with COP jargon and with UN speak. But direction of travel is what people put a lot of stock into. And the direction of travel here is, again, we're finally recognizing that fossil fuels account for about 75% of this problem. We're not going to solve it without phasing them down and phasing them out. The conference spent two weeks debating whether and how to call it a phase down or a phase out. Loads and loads of avalanches of news coverage from the conference site going all around the world carried the language that normalized the idea that we're up, we're up to phasing down and phasing out fossil fuels. That language didn't make the declaration. But it's only a matter of time before it does, and it's only a matter of time before the shift away from fossil fuels that we're already seeing starts to be accelerated as a result of this week's conference outcome. Well, that's huge, right? And although I, I do remember hearing a little bit, and I'd be interested actually to hear your thoughts on how did we get there? It's a real roller coaster at any conference like this. And again, this goes back to the fundamental structure of a UN climate conference where Every country, every block of negotiators, every negotiating block of countries has to agree or at least agree not to disagree. They have to get some degree of consensus on every word in that document. It's, it was explained to me at one point that the reason for that was to make sure that small countries with smaller, smaller negotiating delegations and less capacity to follow all the different negotiating strings, that those small countries would not be steamrolled by the bigger ones. But what it means, of course, is that a small country, you know, if, if, if you know, Barbados can, can block the final outcome, so can Russia, so can Saudi Arabia, and Barbados is not sending 5,000 fossil fuel lobbyists to the conference. So what happened here was, as I said, you know, the language of fossil fuel phase down, fossil fuel phase out, it was everywhere. You know, it was in the advocacy, it was in the news coverage. More than 100 countries were advocating for fossil fuel phase out language in the final text. And right through the weekend, there was a draft that the COP presidency produced. And this was led by Sultan Al-Jabra, the CEO of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. The COP presidency, the secretariat produced a text that had, I think it was four or five different options for what they could talk about. And at one extreme, one option with no text at all, we just won't say anything about energy. And at the other extreme was language of fossil fuel phase out. 
So that was a reflection of the range and diversity of views among the different delegations. On Monday, when the president published what they intended as the final text, there was nothing, I think there were three references to fossil fuels, nothing about phase out, phase down, transition, that was all gone. And I mean, I, I was covering the conference from nine time zones away. You know, they were in Dubai, we're here in Ottawa. So it's hard to say this definitively, but the, you know, the feeling I got just from watching it was that the room erupted. You know, developing countries were saying, we're not here to sign our own death warrant. And Australia came back and said, we're not here to sign their death warrant, right? It was that intense and furious and determined. And what we've heard since is there have been talks that there was an alternate text that had been developed by delegation, but the fact that did happen. And I gather Canada was right at the center of that effort. And actually not to be overly promotional of our of our publication, but we've just in the last 25 minutes published an interview with Stephen Guilbeault, the Canadian Environment Minister, who was at the center of this state of all the negotiations, but certainly at this stage. And what he recounted was that the countries that wanted stronger language and wanted something worth having in the final text, they drafted it together, they worked out their differences, nobody got everything they wanted because nobody ever does at a COP. But at some point, they took that compromised text and brought it to the presidency and said, if you want a successful outcome, this is what it has to be. Right. And, and you know, that is where both the strong language and the weasel words came from, because it was a negotiation. It was a compromise. Right. So in the end, that was published <laughs> at some ridiculous hour. I think what I remember the, the whole week, frankly, has been a blur, but I think it was Tuesday night. So about 10 p.m. our time, 7 a.m. their time, I was just a bit to shut down. I thought, they're not doing anything. I'd better get a few hours of sleep while I can, get up at 1 or 3 in the morning, see how they're doing. And then something came over Twitter, another text had just dropped. So that would have been about 7.30 Wednesday morning, Dubai time. Wow. And they had it finalized by about noon their time, and that was the end of the conference. And that's the text we have. Yeah, fair. I mean, I mean, who knew that diplomacy would produce drama, but that was a dramatic, right? Yeah, because, fair. Because COP28 was a failure. Right. You know, 36 or 48 hours before it wasn't. Right. Yeah. So I, I have one more sort of specific copyright question then before we start moving to Canada, because we announced some stuff while we were doing it. But I, I think it's one that I would say many people have about COP. And I don't expect you to have a perfect answer to this question, but, you know, given that you followed so many, I'm curious on your thoughts on it, which is like, how much does the text actually matter, right? Like, like getting the words fossil fuels into this text, my understanding and is that the main value of getting everyone to sign on to these slowly improving texts is that it sort of gives the internal actors of the states themselves something to hold their government to account. But like, there's not actually, like I was having a conversation with a friend of mine recently and and he was like, is there any penalties if you don't do any of these things? Yeah. And I was like, no, no, it's not. It's all voluntary. Yeah. And so I'm curious, is it is it entirely about giving the internal actors a way to hold their leaders to account? 
or is there something, some other value? Like maybe it's just that people want to continue to keep their status on the world stage. Like I'm curious how valuable this text is in terms of reducing emissions and, and where that value comes from. It's about holding leaders to account. That's for sure. Think about it in a Canadian context to think how, how tough that is to actually deliver on in the real world and recognize it in Canada, at least for now, there is a lot more space, a lot more openness for that kind of advocacy and politics than goes on in a lot of countries like the UAE, like Egypt, where we saw a lot of the restrictions on civil society while we were there for the two conferences this year on last. But in Canada, you know, where, you know, we can get into Parliament Hill, we can lobby our MPs still. You know, the sort of the hardcore climate advocacy that says, you know, you you made a promise, a promise is a promise. It will run up against opposition from the Alberta and Saskatchewan government that are increasingly isolated by this kind of cop decision, but they're still out there pitching. It'll run up against the fact that most of our friends and neighbors and colleagues and family probably are not going to be thinking about climate change as their top issue right now because of affordability, because of the housing crisis, because of inflation. And both things are true. You know, that yes, climate change is an overarching global emergency that makes all of those things worse. And it's also true that for people who are, you know, working three jobs to get by or routinely having to choose between food and fuel, we're not going to break through. Not at least not with a hardcore climate method. I think there are ways of connecting and aligning with that, but it's not by saying, hey, what have you done for the cop outcome today. So I think, you know, back to that language of the direction of travel, I think the, I've come to think that although the, the grassroots and civil society action around the cop is fundamental and absolutely essential, in itself, it's not enough. And where the signaling actually happens is when a steel company gets the message that, yeah, you know, fossil fuels are going to be more volatile. And I won't be able to control my pricing and my supply chains as clearly as I used to be able to because fossil fuels are on the way out. Okay, I guess we need to start looking at electrifying our steel mill. You know, and it's never as simple as that, but it's one of the factors that will say to the industries that depend on fossil fuels, that will say it fundamentally to the financiers, like the World Bank of Canada, which is the world, not just Canada, but the world's biggest fossil fuel investor right now, fossil fuel funder. It'll say to the RBC, you know what? It can't just be talk, it has to be action because your investors are going to figure this out and start demanding it. So in their own terms, in their own interest, they need to start taking action on this. And a cup decision that actually acknowledges that can have that impact, just like the International Energy Agency did about two and a half years ago when for the first time they published a net zero scenario and showed exactly what it would take to get to 1.5. And IAEA's been a juggernaut for this stuff since. I don't, you know, no one should expect to agree with everything they say, but broadly speaking, they've been fabulous and long overdue. That's the kind of thing that gets taken seriously by the business and industry decision makers who, like it or not, right now with the society we've got, are going to be really influential in either making this transition happen faster or in really slowing it down. And, and and the cop outcome has an impact right there. Awesome. That's that's helpful. Thank you. So we're going to go to a quick music break, and then we're going to come back to talk about Canada because it 
we did use this time to announce an emissions cap that we want to get to and a couple other things. So we will be just at a music break and we'll be right back with Mitchell Beer to talk about the emissions cap and all those things. Take us away. Submerged at sea Days and weeks at a time Ninety-six million pounds of steel go swimming by I see your eyes surveying In the mirror on the tide Am I overstating this need to make it right? Cause I know the reason why you hide beneath the waves I'll keep on waiting, I'm counting down the days And welcome back to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or may find us on the podcast, which can be found anywhere podcasts can be found, including now with the Harbinger Media Network. If you're just joining us, my name is Stefan Hostetter, and I'm here with Mitchell Beer, the publisher of The Energy Mix, with our now monthly check-in on things about energy and Canada and we'll still looking for a name. So if you have a name, let us know because it'd be more fun to have a name for the segment. Thanks so much for being here, Mitchell. We are going to talk about the emissions cap as this was just something that- you, Just before you do, we better, you, you forgot to mention the fabulous prize we have for whoever comes up with a name. Oh, is it? what's a prize? First prize is a free subscription to the Energy Mix, which is already free, by the way. Second prize, two free subscriptions. 
Ooh, that's a, that is quite the offer, everyone. So you could get if you get if it was two names, we'll give you three subscriptions. You oh, know? Hell, sure. <laughs> Why not? So give it, keep giving away. Um, this all comes into betting. Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, I think I'm technically actually subscribed to at least two email addresses. So I think I personally do currently have two subscriptions to the Energy Mix. And we appreciate every single one of them. <laughs> <laughs> so the big news from for Canadian climate during COP was the emissions cap that was announced, or at least the regulations around it. Can you tell us what that was and how people are feeling about it? So the federal government has been talking for years, not months, and has been working really hard, in fairness, for years, not months, on a measure that would set a, a regulated cap on the climate pollution that the oil and gas industry can produce. It's really important to specify right off the top that this is not the federal government trying to regulate oil and gas production. That's what the industry is claiming. That's what its supporters in the Alberta and Saskatchewan government are claiming. But in fact, under the Canadian Constitution, there is absolutely no way that a federal government can or should try to regulate production of any natural resource, including oil and gas, because that falls squarely within provincial jurisdiction. What they can, however, do is regulate pollution. And so that's the intent of the emissions cap. What happened during, what happened before the COP and on the way in was that the Environment Minister Stephen Gibbo was saying, he said a few times that he would have been shocked if the announcement hadn't happened by the time the COP was over. Climate hawks, civil society people from Canada showed up in Dubai. I mean, just pause on the moment that Canadians were making the fashion statement at Dubai. This is not the way I normally expect it to show up internationally, but maybe that's just me. They had this very cool and stylish emissions cap. It was a baseball cap with the word emissions on it. And we saw in photos on social media that the cap was making the rounds. Caroline Bruyer, the executive director of Climate Action Network Canada, had one on, on a social media post. And then when she did a fireside chat with Minister Gibo early in the conference, he presented him with his own cap, but said he didn't, he, but said he didn't get to wear it until they actually introduced it. They did introduce it. I think it was on about day seven or eight or so of the conference. It was actually a really long news conference between Ottawa and Dubai involving a total of four federal cabinet ministers. And what they basically announced is that they're introducing the framework for this. They're going to consult further. They're going to make sure that this works for everybody. And the intent is to get it introduced while this government is in and in place while this government is in power. Awesome. And so can you tell us what it is? Like, what's the uh, what's the goal here? I, I heard, con as with all of these things, I've heard conflicting feelings. You know, it's like great to have. But I also, and correct me if I'm wrong, read that despite sort of the Alberta and Saskatchewan governments sort of saying, like, how dare you, that the actual cap sort of floated was high enough that the whatever the Pathways Alliance had said they would do would already need it? So that depends on a couple of things, uh, but principally, it depends on them being able to, here we are back with abatement, the Pathways Alliance has been advocating for carbon capture technology that will allow them to continue extracting, continue emitting, actually increase their extraction because they still live in a delusional world, but they think there will be demand for that. Um, 
And, and that's okay because we'll capture the carbon and bury it underground. Never mind the 80% of the carbon in a barrel of oil that gets emitted after that oil is sent down a pipeline or in a tanker, reaches its end user, and then it's used as directed, right? So, you know, fry the planet when used as directed is a really good uh, sales line. I wish they would use that. But the other issue that they're up against is that the carbon capture and storage industry is 50 years old. They still cannot make a promise or keep their target, keep a promise or keep to their target, hit a target. They cannot come in affordably, which is why the industry is going after the federal government and the provincial government for even more subsidies. And the only way Pathways Alliance members can fit within the cap and meet their own goal, which is to increase extraction is if they can capture the carbon, do it affordably, do it reliably, actually keep it captured, keep it sequestered. And all of those to one degree or another are technical questions that in 50 years, the industry hasn't answered. There was a, a release last year from the Institute for Energy, Economics and Financial Analysis. And yes, an organization by that name actually exists. And by the way, they absolutely rock every single day. And they did a survey of the 13 top carbon capture projects around the world, the flagship project that among the 13 of them accounted for just over half of the global carbon capture capacity and of those 13 projects to one degree or another, 10 of them were a failure. And I keep thinking that if the solar industry or the wind industry or the energy efficiency industries were to come forward and say, hey, look, here's our performance records. We managed to succeed three out of 13 times. Come on, fund us. Come on, get on board. It's the revolution. <laughs> They'd be la we'd be laughed out of the room, and rightly so. Because solving climate change isn't just about nice words. We actually have to have stuff that works. And thank goodness, energy efficiency, solar, wind, increasingly battery technology are practical and affordable and ready for prime time, which carbon capture isn't. So that's, to my mind, what's at the base of the problem that, you know, this emissions cap brings into focus the fact that the industry is not ready or competent to cut up the emissions when it needs to. And now they're going to be held to account for it. There is, I think, a really legitimate concern that if new fossil fuel capacity, you know, whether it's extraction, whether it's refineries, if this, you know, if this new capacity is put in place on the promise of carbon capture, and then as folks are predicting, the carbon capture technology fails, it isn't as though, you know, first of all, it'll, it'll take years to track that because we'll have to get through the obligatory spinning greenwashing to actually establish that the, that the plant isn't working as directed or as it's supposed to. But then the argument is, do you really think anyone's going to close down that capacity? once it's been built. So at that point, carbon capture becomes a false solution that is a, you know, an excuse for another, you know, multiple decades of emissions. And that's a risk we have to be really watchful for and make sure that doesn't happen. Yeah, for sure. And it's funny, our next week's episode is we're playing a bit of a game with uh, with a friend of the show, Dr. Alex Tavasoli, where we talk about the sort of difference between the elbow grease approach of climate action and the innovation approach to climate action and how much it feels like the, you know, private industry 
and the incentive structure that government sets up so often is just trying to really focus on the innovation side of things rather than the elbow grease side of things. And, you know, carbon capture and storage is obviously such a big piece of that. It's like, well, we can just innovate our way out of this instead of just doing the thing where we stop using the stuff, right? Like it really yeah. is like you're trying to like hand with like the magic behind the curtain kind of situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny. I, I agree with you that that is what the language of innovation has become. And it makes me crazy because <laughs> I, I mean, you know, it's a sort of a throwaway line that they're giving innovation a bad name and then for better or for worse. But what strikes me about that is that there is a hell of a lot of innovation, lowercase i, on innovation, behind the real legitimate technology that are practical and affordable and ready for prime time and ready to get us where we need to go. You know, the, the satellite that can track emissions coming out of an individual facility so that fossils can't lie about it or that, that's really cool. And I never thought that I'd be really excited to be a satellite. Right. But, but that kind of satellite, oh, you bet. The innovation behind, you know, a solar panel that has panels both on the, on the top and the bottom or a wearable panel or flexible panels or building integrated ones that are on the side of the building instead of the roof. The innovation that it took wind in my lifetime to get from the point where if there was a 200 kilowatt, so 200,000 watt wind turbine that actually managed to stay up in a stiff breeze, it would make the front page of the publication that I worked for in the 1970s. Now we're at 14 megawatts, that's 14 million watts, and they're out in the ocean and they come in the multiples and by the dozen. We don't even write about a 14 megawatt wind turbine because it's not used anymore. So to me, the differentiator between that kind of innovation and the you know, sort of stuff behind the curtain is, it actually goes back to a quote that I heard many years ago, and that is that if you build your castles in the air, your work need not be lost. That's where they should be, but now put a foundation under them. You know, and that's not the kind of quote you would necessarily expect from Henry David Thoreau, but that's who it came from. And the difference with the renewable technology is that they've actually sweated the details. They've actually bothered. They've actually done the costing. Not like this stuff that the fossil industry is pitching at us as supposed solution. Yeah, for sure. And that's and, not to say the renewable and that's not to say the renewable industries are perfect. Nobody is. Right. Right. But <laughs> the comparison makes them look pretty damn perfect. Yeah. Well, and to go back to where you're talking about what happens if you know solar industry didn't hit its all its targets. What's interesting is that quite consistently, solar and wind and renewables have actually beaten most ex targets, right? Like, how often has the IEA underestimated how much will be online Always. or the price? Always. Like every time, right? They're constantly beating, 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 and yet there's still somehow this idea that renewable is expensive, so we have to find another way. And it's like, no, it's it requires you to change who has like these holds these power structures, and that's what they don't like. But I, I want to get to the methane regulations because obviously that has a lot to do with oil sands and and would not be solved by carb capture, <laughs> but really, really ends up being huge. Um, so can you talk about those and how those were announced? Very briefly, the regulation is finally out of something else that they've been talking about and working on it for a long time. Canada is pushing for a 75% reduction in methane emissions in from fossil fuels by 2030. I I'm sorry, I didn't have a chance to check this before coming on the air. I think that's a world's first. There are a few different world's firsts going around, frankly, and I think that was one of them. 
And we've been hearing and saying for a long time that the technology to control methane is available. It's just that companies aren't going to do it voluntarily, which means they need to be regulated to do it. That's what regulation is supposed to do. So now the regulation's out. It's not in effect yet, but it's been, you know, it's been developed, it's been, it's in play, so to speak. And the target is 75% by 2030. And that's something to be proud of. It really is a big thing. When the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released its final assessment report last April, March or April from the current round, they basically identified solar, wind, and methane controls as the cheapest way, the cheapest pathways to get the deepest emission reductions by 2030. And by the way, they identified carbon capture and small modular nuclear reactors as the most expensive and least promising options, which of course is why we want a website, right? But solar, wind, I think energy efficiency was on that list. It should have been if it wasn't, and, and methane. And we're doing it. Let's mention as well that one of the, the really big milestones, big achievements from COP28s that has been totally submerged by the conversation around the transition of fossil fuels is that the text does talk about tripling global renewable energy capacity and doubling the pace of energy efficiency improvements by 2030. And that's massive too. Yeah, for sure. We're still a little bit stuck in this world where energy demand is increasing as fast as we get renewables. And so we're not doing too much of eating away at the actual fossil fuel use. And so the tripling is going to be necessary to actually really begin to eat away at that actual market share. But and again, the doubling of the pace of energy efficiency, right? Is for sure, really crucial to, is really crucial to that. You know, and to your point that you know demand keeps rising for decades, not years. I can tell you that energy efficiency has always been the last thing anybody mentioned, the last thing anybody thought of, and I've just done that to you here, right? We're almost done, and I finally remember to mention it, right? But it's also often the cheapest thing you can do because the cheapest unit of energy is the unit that you never, ever have to generate, transport, consume. Yeah, for sure. And that was that was one of the big aspects of the Green Energy Act when it came out here in Ontario many years ago was this yep. fact that they were like, can we do this? But I, we teased it at the beginning, so I want to make sure we at least get to it. Can you talk to us quickly about how successful... Canada has been at apparently moving in the direction to reduce emissions. You know, because my yeah. my understanding of what I've been reading the graphs has been that we've been relatively steady for the past, you know, five ten years, and that it's been basically that you see if you look at at it from a regional perspective, that most provinces are decreasing, but the massive spike in oil and gas emissions has basically offset any success there, and. I mean, I know here in Ontario, we're expecting some natural gas plants to come online because that's what the Ford government decided to do. And yet there's this model that the Canada, Canadian government released that seems to imply we might hit our 2030 targets. Well, what they're saying is that we're not quite at the 2030 target yet, but we're actually on track to meet and do a little bit better than the interim target that we set for 2026. So the first thing to say is this is this is modeling. So what they do is they take all their various inputs and put them through a computer model and come up with a conclusion. This is the conclusion they reached. It doesn't mean that we are suddenly in 2026 
and we're looking around ourselves and saying, oh, that's cool. We just cut our emissions by, you know, whatever, 26%. But that's, that's what this particular federal government model is showing. They, they released this data the same day as the emissions cap. And it was really interesting. I mentioned that news conference, the news conference with multiple ministers. It was really interesting to see them really hang their hats on this is an improvement. It's taken a lot of work. There's been a lot of moving parts. You know, there are like 149 measures in the national emission in the emission reduction plan for 2030. There's a some huge number of to-do items on Stephen Gilbo's mandate letter from the prime minister. And what this modeling is saying is that by 2026, we're actually going to be seeing those results. Get back to you in 2026, but whether it's there, but this is certainly a lot more optimistic modeling results than we've usually been accustomed to saying. And I mean, I mean, you know, no federal government of any political stripe has ever met, put it the other way, they, they've never met a, an emission target that they could actually achieve, right? And in this moment, these ministers are, you know, drawing a line and saying, we're on track for this one. And if only because of the history, that's new. Yeah, well, exactly. And still somewhat surprising. So yeah. I'm curious, one last question for you before we go, which is that we are, this is the second last show of the year. We're about to enter 2024. And so I'm curious if you have any thoughts about what you've sort of seen this year in trends. To go back to the phrase that you had bring back, was it the path of travel? Direction of travel? Direction of travel. Direction of travel. So let's go back to that. What do you see in the direction of travel when it comes to global trends or Canada trends or energy trends that you think that people should pay attention to in 2024? Well, so many different things, but a couple come to mind. One is just just at home. We've been in this space now for, you know, a couple or a few years where we're past the what and into the how. So much of the work for far too long that it needed to be, which is advocating for get that legislation in place, get that emergency declaration declared, let's get that target agreed, the, you know, 30,000 foot, because what success looks like. And that was really hard. And it was made harder by the fact that we were up against one of the toughest industry lobbies on the planet. And, and that, of course, is the fossil fuel lobby, which just never quits. But we finally got there. And we thought that was tough. And now we're into the what, which is the, implement, the implementation. You know, we have this municipal plan. We've set this decarbonization target. Halton Hills has a, in Ontario, has a 2030 deadline to hit net zero. You know, and I think, you know, even even for less ambitious targets, the question is, okay, good, we've said that now, how the hell do I actually do this? And that applies, you know, at every level in every sector, you know, how do I do this on my farm? How do I do this in my small town? How do I do this in my metropolitan area? How do I do this at the provincial or, or, or federal level? So the how the implementation is messy and complicated and hopeful and uplifting and absolutely necessary. And it's going to continue to be in 2024. At the international level, I keep thinking that it all comes back to finance. It all comes back to money, same as it always does. At one point, the negotiator from Uganda was saying, you know, sure, we'll agree to, I can't remember if she was referring to transition or phase out at this point, we'll agree. 
as long as the rich countries go first and we get to develop our resources the way we want to for well, because if not, you're just consigning us to poverty. And what the developing countries know is that it's fine for the rich countries to say, oh, you know, you really ought to decarbonize. You really ought to leapfrog the stage we went through where we benefited from this for decades. And then we're asking you to stop right away because you're on the front line of the crisis, but not handing over the the dollars or even the financing terms that would make it possible for those countries to make the transition and and build their economies at the same time. The example that I heard in, over the last couple of weeks is that a piece of infrastructure that Canada wants to build, we can get done with an interest rate of 3%. If it's a developing country, the interest rate might be 14% or 30% for the same work, which means it costs that cash-strapped government so much more to get that done at a time when they are also facing down much more and much more serious impact of climate change because of where they are geographically. So international finance absolutely has to be performed quickly or as quickly as anything happens at the international level to get this solved. There's some really good thought and analysis and advocacy going into what needs to be done. It's probably show it itself and I'm almost certainly not the right answer to talk about it because I'm still learning this stuff, but we all have to. We all have to get up to speed on this and be ready to support developing countries to get those, I'm going to sound like cops speak now, mechanisms and means of implementation in place. But in spite of the, you know, five-dollar language, it really does matter. Without those solutions, we'll be leaving whole regions of the world behind. And no one should expect anyone to agree to that, nor should they. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. This has been Mitchell Beer, the publisher of the Energy Mix with the unnamed Energy Mix check-in. We will be back next week with a special episode with Dr. Alex Tavasoli. My name is Stephen Hostetter. This has been The Green Majority. Thanks so much, everyone, and see you next week.